It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Today's episode is going to center around a pretty serious subject matter. Well, very serious, I should say. I don't want to make light of this at all. I suppose I start off by saying this because some of our episodes, in fact, maybe most of our episodes, start off a little light. Jason and I joke around and are playful. And sometimes we start talking about very random things that lead into deeper conversations. And we're just going to get deep right off the back today. Because right now, the date that this episode airs, we are in the middle of Suicide Prevention Week, which occurs from September 6th to the 12th in this year of 2020. Each year, it's around this time. And during this week, people around the country work to spread the message that suicide can be prevented and to help reach as many people as possible with tools and resources to support themselves and those around them. And oftentimes, this theme of this special week is based around hope, resilience, and recovery. It takes people coming together to make a difference in general. And especially when it comes to something like this. And this hits close to home for us because as you may know from listening to previous episodes, Jason has himself considered suicide. And we've brought this up in a few episodes. We can link to some of those for you at wellevator.com. If you are brand new to our show or a regular listener who has not visited our website yet, this might be the time to do it because... We're going to include a lot of resources. And one of my aims with this episode is to encourage you to take some action because you can literally save a life if you take action and use a week like this. It doesn't have to be limited to this week, of course, but sometimes these weeks or days when more attention is brought to something, it's a really good opportunity to finally take action to things that you're passionate about or to find passion for something important like this. So, If you visit Wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, and you just type in suicide to the search bar, you'll find this episode and some of the others where we've talked about it. There will be resources for you so that you can learn how to get more involved and support other people during this time and beyond. Before we dig deeper into this, Jason, I'm curious how you're feeling about this week of focus on suicide prevention. I feel like I am... hopeful. And I'm hopeful because I have been seeing different aspects of a more mainstream conversation in different industries and different groups of people talking about this. And I've mentioned this in previous episodes about certain celebrities or public figures, athletes talking about their struggles with mental illness, depression, and suicidal ideation. And actually two nights ago, at the time of this recording, I was watching the basketball game between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks, and they did a post-game interview with a a Clippers player named Paul George, and he had had a really good night, a high-scoring game, did really well. The Clippers won the game, and they asked him what changed for him, 
And it was one of, it might be in terms of those post-game interviews, probably the most real, open, vulnerable one that I've ever seen an athlete give. And he said, I was in a really dark place. So just to give some context and how I'm feeling about all this, the NBA players right now are playing in a, a literal bubble in the Walt Disney Resort down in Orlando, Florida, where everything's like hyper quarantined and all the players and the staff are down there. And he was saying that he was in a dark place and he was feeling massive depression and anxiety and was struggling with his mental health and that he had a lot of support and people loving him and people giving him direction and, you know, cheering him on to get through that. But it was the first time I'd ever seen on live TV an athlete, you know, when someone's like, well, what was going on with you? Why were you in a slump for so long? And him saying, I was, quote, in a really dark place. I've never heard an athlete say that. So if we look at on one hand, statistically, during the quarantine period, especially with young people, I think between the ages of, say, 14 and 20, suicide rates statistically are getting really high for young people right now, which is is disturbing for a lot of reasons. But I also feel hopeful, Whitney, to, to give a long answer to your question and seeing things like in professional sports, athletes talking very openly about being in a dark place, being depressed, being anxious, struggling with mental health. And uh, I'll link to that actually in, in our show notes, that interview with Paul George. People want to watch it. The listener wants to watch it. And the other thing, I forwarded you this article, I believe it was two days ago, uh, Business Insider had a really great article talking about how almost half of entrepreneurs struggle with mental health. It was an article talking about different founders and investors and high-level entrepreneurs, how they struggle with isolation, depression, and pressure. And talks about a 2015 study from the University of San Francisco and they found in this study that 49% of entrepreneurs they surveyed have some sort of a mental health condition and that it's wanting to kind of explore this stigma surrounding mental health and how that discourages entrepreneurs and people that are hustling and working 16 hours a day and, and people that are under intense pressure from VC funding, et cetera, et cetera, that they don't really talk about it, right? Because if you're working 12, 16 hours a day and you have all this pressure to make a business run... I don't think in that industry either, there's a lot of openness about talking about depression and suicidal ideation. So this is all of my way of saying, even though there is a higher level of suicide in certain age groups and segments and ethnicities happening right now, and that is absolutely heartbreaking, I am glad that people in different industries in high visibility positions are talking about their struggles. And I think that is so crucial to normalize this conversation and remove that stigma and remove the shame and remove the guilt because that's been way too long. And those are many of the reasons I didn't talk about it for years is because I felt a massive amount of shame. I felt guilty. I felt scared admitting the truth publicly. So I'm glad to see those walls coming down. I really am. I am too. And thank you, Jason, for being open to discussing this because it is kind of interesting for me, shame in general and the things that we hide out of fear of judgment is fascinating because it is like getting in our way in, in so many capacities. And especially when it comes to suicide, because I think what often happens with suicide is that the people who are still alive are wondering why they didn't know about this. And it's very common for people to say, wow, I, I didn't realize that this person was 
considering this? And is there anything that I could have done to prevent it? And as part of this prevention week, there's this question of, is suicide preventable? And I think a lot of people ask themselves about this, whether they've experienced suicide personally or they're just observing it happening in the world. Maybe a public figure has committed suicide and it's affected you. I know for you, Jason, you have actually talked about this with several celebrities and public figures that you really admired and how much it impacted your life when they passed away, when they chose to end their lives. So that why is very natural. And as we know, suicide can't really be attributed to a single thing. That's why suicide prevention requires sustainable, ongoing efforts from many people. And talking about it openly like this, I think, is a really important element, right? And through these discussions, through raising our awareness, getting more educated about it, we can actually see if there are opportunities to intervene early, to find ways to support people who have struggled. So Jason, I suppose one thing I'm curious about with you, I mean, if you want to talk more about how you've been affected by suicide outside of yourself, but I'm curious with you... You told me once that there were some times that you got really close to ending your life. I'm curious, what is it that made you decide not to do it? And then what made you feel comfortable talking to me? And how many people did you talk about it with privately before you started opening up about it in such a big way, like on this show and on other parts of the web? What was that journey like for you? And how did you get over any feelings of shame or? I don't even know, is shame the right word to use for you? Like why you didn't initially talk about it? There's a lot to unpack there. I remember in the first time that I really was seriously considering killing myself was it was, I mean, first of all, it's sort of this journey of sitting in bed and going throughout your day and just randomly thinking of all the ways you want to do it. I mean, there have been a lot of times where I would, I don't want to necessarily get graphic, but I suppose we're going down this road anyway, so why not? You know, it was like, do I want to shoot myself? Do I want to hang myself? Do I want to cut myself? Do I want to lock myself in my garage and pipe the exhaust in through the side window and duct tape it? A lot of times, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I remember one time that I got very, very close. I was in my kitchen at my old condo and I had my chef's knife in my hand and I thought it would be an extremely poetic thing for me to just stab myself in the stomach and just bleed out in my kitchen with my chef's knife. I thought that would be some kind of poetic ending to my life. And I remember I had the knife in my hand and I was asking myself if I actually had the courage to do it. Like I had the knife to my stomach and I was like, it's an interesting moment to like sit with that and be like, do I have the courage to do this? Can I actually do this? And in that moment, when I was holding the knife to my stomach, something, I don't know, but it was, it, it was a voice that was not my own. That's all I can say. Not audibly, but like a sense of something speaking to me that said, do you really want to die? And I got so clear in that moment after that question arose that it wasn't my inner voice. It was some, again, I don't have an explanation for it, 
And it was almost like an almost instantaneous realization after that question came through. And I realized I didn't actually want to die. I just didn't want to suffer anymore. And that's a huge distinction. It was a massive distinction for me because in my mind, I thought that killing myself was the best option. I wouldn't suffer anymore. I wouldn't be in this pain. I wouldn't be writhing in this mental agony anymore. And that ultimately would be easier for everyone. That if I would just wasn't here, first of all, it'd be easier for me. And it'd also be easier for everyone else. It was just, it seemed intellectually like a good solution, to be honest with you. My mental state was like, this is a good solution. You're not going to struggle anymore. You're not going to feel this pain. You're not going to feel this absolute sorrow to the depth of your soul. It'll be over. It seemed like a good solution. But I had associated somehow that that was the only way to end my suffering, right? Like that, this is, this is the way. But when that question came through, I realized that there was a separation between those two things that it wasn't, it wasn't actually that I wanted to leave my body and leave earth and kill myself. It's I wanted my suffering to end, right? And those things didn't have to be mutually exclusive. I thought they, in my mind, it was like, well, this is it. This is the way to end the suffering. That was a huge point for me, Whitney, was realizing those two things were not inextricably linked, that there was a separation. There were other ways. I didn't know what those ways were, right? And at that point, it was me putting the knife down, sitting with myself, crying, and being like, okay, what now? If what you want is to end your suffering, you don't actually want to die. You want to end your suffering. Huge distinction. Cool. Then how do we go about ending it? You know, and when I say ending suffering, I don't mean... I don't mean as a magic pill that I'll never suffer again, right? That was the other thing was like, if I kill myself, I'll never suffer again, right? And we've talked about this in previous episodes that suffering is an intrinsic part of existence. I believe that like we will suffer, we will experience pain. And there was something about that moment with that I was just so at the end of my rope and I was so exhausted with living and suffering and the pain I was experiencing, that that seemed to be the best way. But again, that moment was a jump off point for me where I was like, there's a different way. I don't know what it is. And that ultimately, that day is what led me to seek out my therapist, Gary, which I found through my mentor, Michael. It led me to go get my blood test and my neurotransmitters tested from Dr. Green. And it led me to taking meditation and spirituality and like looking at myself and my belief systems more deeply. Like if I look back on that moment of almost taking my life and really seriously considering it, it was a massive blessing. It was a huge redirect in my life. And how were you received when you started talking about it? Because I imagine that there were some people that have commented on these talks about suicide that you've had. Some of them might be public, but I imagine that a, a lot of them, correct me if I'm wrong, have been private outreach. So without compromising anyone's privacy, are there any things that you discovered through your communications with other people when you've talked about suicide openly? Yeah, I want to loop back really quick because I realized I didn't answer one of your sub questions from a few minutes ago, which was who did I talk to about it first? And then I'll get to the public interactions. I remember speaking to Michael, my mentor, about it. I remember 
working up the courage to talk to my mom about it because I, I had this weird, the shame around it with my mom, right, specifically, or with people close to me was like, I failed them. That all of the love and support and everything that people have given to me and given me a leg up in life and supported my career and my creative endeavors that if they were to find out that I'm this depressed and this suicidal and this full of sadness and suffering that I've somehow failed them, right? That was part of the shame was, but you have all this success and you have a TV show and a cookbook deal and you have this condo and you have all this external stuff. It's almost like I experienced a micro version, I think, of what a lot of public sentiment towards celebrities is, right? We've talked about this previously too, but it's, it bears repeating that you've got all this money and fame and influence and millions of dollars and you're an athlete, you're a celebrity, you're a singer. How could you be depressed? It's again, this dehumanizing, worshiping of the material side of existence of you've got all this stuff and you've got all this zeros in your bank account and this big house and you should be happy. What do you mean you're depressed? I experienced a micro version of that, of like, if I come out with this, are people going to respond like, well, you, how are you depressed? You've got blah, 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 blah. You've got this show and the success and this and that. And I didn't want to be on the receiving end of that judgment. That was part of my fear and shame around it. But once I started to realize that if I don't tell the people that are closest to me, like Michael, my mom, you, some of our other friends, and go to therapy where I have a really open container to like go deep into this pain, those kind of interactions, starting with my inner circle, if you will, right, and my therapist, that I think is what allowed me the confidence to start to deconstruct the shame and why I felt afraid to talk about it. And then I actually had an event in LA, I think this was 2015, you were so wonderful, Whitney, we did a live stream of it and we had like 50 people come and I talked for about three hours openly about the chemical side of this from neurotransmitters and biology. I talked about our belief systems and a lot of the pain that we carry and the trauma we carry through life and a lot of the solutions that I was exploring at that point because I wanted to give people maybe resources they'd never considered, right? Because I think part of the conversation, I'm looping into the second question you asked about DMs and messages I receive is this is such a complex puzzle. What we're talking about is suicide, depression, mental health. It's so complex. It's this is the furthest thing from a one-size-fits-all approach to health and wellness. It's the furthest thing. It's such a nuanced, complex thing because I think for me and for a lot of people, perhaps, it's a combination of what is happening biologically and chemically in your body in terms of your neurotransmitter function, your nutrients, your overall health, any kind of genetic predisposition towards mental health. You have the mental side of it, which is our belief systems, our constructs about who we are any unresolved trauma from our past or shame or guilt or feeling like we don't belong here. For me, it was abandonment issues and never feeling good enough, feeling like I didn't belong here. I wasn't worthy of life, right? So there's that mental and belief side of things. But then you also have, you know, sort of this idea of somatically finding in the body where you've stored pain and trauma. Like there's so many layers to this conversation. There's also how we consume media, any religious overtones. I mean, this whole subject, I'm so passionate about it, Whitney, and I'm so glad we're talking about it because having lived through it and continue to live through it, like I'm not going to lie, earlier in quarantine during COVID, there have been moments where I've had a couple days of like, I think I want to kill myself. It's nowhere near the intensity and duration it was years ago, right? Six, seven years ago, where it was like for months I was thinking about killing myself and wanting to die. Whereas now it may last a couple hours or a day or two, 
But then through the techniques I've learned, I can start to unravel it and look at it and let it go. So I don't want to make it sound like I have cured my mental health issues. I personally don't believe, this is my opinion with, that these things need to be looked at as, quote, curable, but that we can amass tools, perspectives, support, and resources to manage it really, really well. That's my current perspective on all of it. It's just, it's a question of management. It's so interesting to hear your experience with this, you know, and I think it's often something that human beings consider. I'd be curious, is there anybody who hasn't thought about suicide, even on a lighter note? Because I think when you know what suicide is, maybe you think like, hmm, would I ever do that? And maybe based on how you've been raised or conditioned, you think like, oh, of course I would never end my life. But to your point, Jason, like even I have thought about it. I didn't necessarily plan it, go down, you know, like really deeply consider it, I don't think. But I am familiar with that feeling of, oh my gosh, I am in so much pain. I'm struggling so much. I don't feel good. I wish that I could just end it all. And I think that's why this is so important to talk about and taking that stigma away from it because it's not to give people encouragement, of course. We're talking about prevention here. But I think that when you open up about something that you're experiencing, that's a huge part of that journey because then that leads you to acknowledging that you've been thinking about it because maybe you do think about it often and you either think, Nobody else does. Like you feel incredibly lonely in considering suicide. Or perhaps you think about it so often throughout your life that you almost feel like it's normal. And that I feel like is dangerous too, because if it's in your head so frequently, you could get obsessed with it or or you normalize it so much that like maybe it doesn't even seem like a problem anymore. And so I think just raising all that awareness and also knowing that there may be people in your life and there chances are there are people in your life that think about suicide, but don't talk about it. So I think that first step is noticing it, being aware of it, if it's within yourself at all and taking away that shame, because it's better to acknowledge it than to let it happen, right? Like that's what's interesting about the shame part of it. It's like kind of strange if you strip it away, that thought of I'm thinking about suicide, but I don't want to tell anybody. I'm embarrassed or I'm, I'm ashamed or I feel guilty about it. But I can almost guarantee that that person would rather you tell them than you not tell them. Because if you don't tell them and then you choose to end your life, they will probably have wished that you had told them. And I think also when you speak to other people, you can learn so much about who is supportive of you and perhaps who isn't. I mean, there are so many different ways to react to that as well. Like I think some people believe that if somebody brought up suicide to them that you could just say, oh, that's silly. Like, I can't believe you are thinking about it. Your life is great. And you know, and, and That's actually something, Jason, I think would be interesting to hear from you. It's what have people said to you that was helpful? And what have people said to you that wasn't helpful when it came to suicide? Like, were there some people that made like light of it or kind of dismissed it? Like, 
you have every like, why would you ever do that? Your life is great. Like you were saying before, like, is that a common reaction? And then what things have really helped you when you've opened up to other people? It's been an overwhelmingly positive, receptive and loving response. I want to say that first and foremost, not only from the people that I'm closest to, the inner circle, the people I deeply consider friends and my family, my therapist, my mentor, everyone has been incredibly open and loving. And to your point about, I wish that they had told me versus the alternative of taking my life. The only regret I think I might have around it is by not speaking up sooner, to be honest. And it was just that I didn't know how to unravel the shame and the confusion and the fear of being judged. But it's interesting when in this situation, I was able to realize that speaking my truth and speaking from my heart and sharing my experience was more important than being afraid of being judged, right? My desire to speak truth, ask for help, ask for support, share my reality with people, even at the risk of being judged or shamed. Once I made the decision that sharing was more important than shutting down, that was a quantum shift for me in terms of opening up to people. There has been pushback and there has been people weighing in when I didn't necessarily ask for input per se. I went on my own road, as I mentioned, you know, getting the blood tests, looking at my nutrient panels, getting my neurotransmitter function and my brain tested and having the eye-opening experience of merging that with mindfulness, meditation, therapy, somatic healing. I mean, I, I really... I went hard in the paint to take a basketball reference into this. You know, I went hard. It was like, okay, we want to help with the suffering and the pain. We're not going to kill ourselves. What do we got to do? Okay. But I remember people reacting, Whitney, over the years in ways. I remember one really sticks out is when I was sharing my workshop that I talked about and I was making some videos online and talking more openly on social media about it. One of the first comments was someone was like, yeah, you're not clinically depressed. This is situational depression. It's just, it's situational. Now, mind you, going to see an integrative and functional medicine doctor and going to see a psychotherapist, they both agreed you are clinically depressed. Your neurotransmitter function is suboptimal based on what you've told us, based on your blood tests, based on your neurotransmitter levels. They were both like, we are diagnosing you with clinical depression. So when someone was trying to negate my reality and be like, you're not clinically depressed, this is a situational depression. I'm like, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you to have you weigh in on my experience of my mental health, my suicide, my depression, what I've been struggling with for years of my life? Who the fuck are you? I don't remember how I responded, but my initial reaction was anger toward this person of like, you have no right to comment on my reality. You have no right to comment on my experience. And that was hard, right? I didn't receive a lot of comments. I've had a few though, Whitney, that were like, you're not actually depressed. It's this. And I'm just like, you are blocked and deleted. Get the fuck off my feed. It's endemic of that social media thing that we talked a lot about, especially with Tony Akamoto on that episode. We'll link to that in the show notes of people's snap judgments and people's cowardice and emboldened attitude to hide behind a keyboard and say whatever the hell they want that they would never say to your face. And when you come out publicly with a really challenging health issue. Like when I opened up online, Whitney, that was scary as hell, you know? And when you talk about suicide, depression, and mental health issues, and someone's like, you're not actually like that, it's this. 
it has been one of the most challenging things for me to deal with. And, and again, it hasn't been a barrage of those comments, but it's like when someone tries to negate your reality and tell you what you're actually experiencing, not even knowing you, not looking at your blood work, not looking at any of those things. For me, it has been one of the most challenging things to deal with when I do get those comments. I bet. And you know, I think that those people have good intentions or just don't know how to help. Because one thing I've realized over the past few years is that sometimes I don't know what to say when somebody's struggling. I want to help somehow. And this is something I've mentioned a bunch of times where I want to say or do the right thing. And I contemplate like not saying or doing anything because I don't want to mess up. So perhaps those people said something in an attempt to help and they messed up because it didn't land in the way that you wanted it to. You know, like it's not necessarily that they were trying to hurt you or bother you or anything. It's that maybe that's how they know or what they think is helpful. And I think it's such a great opportunity to discuss these things about finding out how to best support somebody and how to best support a movement, which I want to get into as well. But before we dive into some more action steps, and information about suicide. Jason, you talked a lot about how going to get your blood work done was a game changer for you and getting diagnosed and figuring out your imbalances. And a lot of this was supported by taking the right supplements for yourself. And it's interesting because I remember there have been times where I've come across information that was like anti-supplements, like you can get all your nutrients through food. And I know you've talked a lot, Jason, you sometimes get triggered by this. Like technically that might not be true for everybody. Literally every body is a little bit different. And to make this overarching statement and encourage other people not to take supplements, I think can be really dangerous. And we really encourage you, the listener, to learn more about your body and what's going on. And there's so many amazing tests. You can now do them through the mail. But it really helps to go to a doctor who you can talk to and get very customized like blood panel done and all of that. So looking into all of these different types of options for yourself is a really great thing. And I know, Jason, it was expensive for you. So it depends on like your insurance coverage. But it's also worth saving up your money for and really investing in this because of how much of a difference getting your body balance can make on your mental health. I mean, it, it could literally be a matter of life or death. Like some people might not realize that taking a supplement could really support them. And, and again, we're not saying that supplements are a cure-all. You might want to go on medication or you might need to go on medication. That's only something that you can determine when working with a medical professional, which we are not, full disclosure. But we are big fans of supplements, each of us. You know, I take them as kind of like my um, proactive measures, and I found so many amazing benefits to them. And one that we want to talk about in this episode, since we're talking a lot about stress and hardship and suffering, is magnesium. So I'm curious, Jason, was that something that you were deficient in or unbalanced in? What led you to getting more into magnesium? Because I think you've been pretty into magnesium since I met you, but I don't know exactly what the timeline was and how you got onto the magnesium track and how it's affected you so much. Yeah. First of all, I think that just to kind of ping pong back and forth, I do agree, Whitney, that every individual has to look at what's right for them. There's not a one size fits all approach to especially this conversation of mental health. 
stress, anxiety, finding our balance in life. And for me, getting that blood work done, getting my neurotransmitters tested and looking at what I was deficient in was huge for me because then I was able to look at, okay, not only what I was deficient in, but specifically what was going to help build those neurotransmitters up and what was going to help mitigate stress in my life. Because at the time I was diagnosed with clinical depression, I was in the midst of a TV series. I was just started writing my first cookbook. My work schedule was so intense. It was not only what was happening to me internally, but it was like the hecticness of my work schedule. And it's interesting because yes, to, to answer your question, the magnesium was low when the blood work came back. And I've noticed lately too, it's, it's interesting even during kind of right now, this quarantine period, you know, you and I have been putting out three podcasts a week and working on a lot of projects, some that are public, some that are private. And I've noticed that lately I've been feeling really worn down, you know, and I started working out again and doing some, some PT for my foot and doing my daily meditations and I'm doing whatever I can to kind of, you know, manage those stress levels even now, right? I still feel stressed. And, you know, I don't like feeling stressed out. I know you don't. And when we feel stressed out, I feel like it certainly affects the people closest to us, right? It's like, you know, you and I have this inside joke about <laughs> me being kind of a grumple gremlin. And I get kind of grumpy when I get stressed, but it's true. And, you know, lately I've been really kind of looking at magnesium again and taking it and it's been helping me feel great. So, you and I have our own versions, Whitney, of like what burnout feels like and working too hard, burning the candle at both ends as entrepreneurs. And I go back to that article I mentioned about entrepreneurs struggling with mental health and burnout. It's like, okay, there's time off, there's more rest, there's relaxation techniques. But in addition to all those things we mentioned, the meditations and working out, I feel like adding magnesium in, which my doctor recommended that I do years ago and I started doing it, it was like, oh, I'm hooked now, right? Like magnesium is awesome. And by acknowledging that, you know, if we look at statistically, most Americans are deficient in magnesium. I've read some stats lately on that. Super interesting. And apparently, I guess it's the fourth most abundant mineral in the human body. So if we look at magnesium, when I was originally researching it years ago, when I was working with Dr. Green, I remember finding out that it's called the master mineral because it's responsible for 300 to 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, right? Including your metabolism. And so, you know, when your energy levels dip, it really affects your sleep, your energy, your metabolism, your pain, and your stress level. And, you know, you talked about food, Whitney, and like, oh, can we get all our nutrients from food, which is a mantra that a lot of people put out there. And yeah, you can get magnesium from like black beans, nuts, sprouted nuts, especially avocado, spinach, and more. But, you know, I really feel like you want to make sure you're getting enough magnesium for what your body needs. And I recommend taking a supplement in addition to those healthy plant-based foods. So people are like, well, what magnesium do I take? And you can go out there and research a bunch of magnesium supplements. And I feel like some magnesium supplements that I've tried, they have kind of failed with helping to mitigate my stress. And I think it's for two reasons. One, a lot of those supplements are synthetic. They're not natural. Your body can't recognize them. And I think also this is a big one. They're not full spectrum. And that means they don't have all of the seven forms of magnesium you need. Right. That's what's nuts when I started researching magnesium is it's funny how you just might assume there's only one type, but there are so many different forms of magnesium and they all serve different purposes. And years ago when I was like really getting into magnesium, I went and looked up like all of the major forms of them and was 
amazed. <laughs> I like the different reasons you would take them, but it's also incredibly confusing and overwhelming too. If you're not used to taking magnesium, you might be like, seven different types. <laughs> and there might be more than that. And maybe those are just like the major types that can help with stress. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of those things where you can either feel overwhelmed by it or you can be like, okay, kind of like earlier when I mentioned that proactive approach of like, what do I do now? And so the cool thing is with bio-optimizers, we've been working with these guys, they have this amazing magnesium supplement, which from what we've researched, it's the most potent, most complete, and also the first full spectrum magnesium formula we've ever seen. And I think ever created, it's called Magnesium Breakthrough. And We've talked about bio-optimizers on previous episodes, how much we love their enzymes and their hydrochloric acid. Well, this magnesium breakthrough, it's a complete formula. It includes all of these naturally derived forms, these seven forms of the supplemental magnesium, and doesn't contain any of those junky synthetic additives or preservatives. And from what we've seen, it's the most potent oral magnesium that you'll find, period. And you know, I noticed that like there's a deeper sense of calm and relaxation with my nervous system. My stress levels are soothed. And a big thing for me too, Whitney, has been sleep. You know, when I get stressed, when I get anxious, when I get depressed, my sleep is affected. And I've noticed that by taking this magnesium breakthrough, I am sleeping so good. So even within the first week, if I use it daily and as instructed, I'm feeling like, whoa, the sleep is just amazing. So most people, they'll use magnesium breakthrough in the morning, you know, it helps you stay calm and resilient to deal with your stress throughout the day. And within about three to five weeks, a lot of people will experience like, a deeper level of peace and serenity and maybe that they haven't felt in a really long time. So we're big fans of it and we recommend trying this magnesium breakthrough for at least 30 days, see how it makes you feel, see if it makes a difference in your mood and your stress levels. And because they're an amazing sponsor, we get to hook you up. So today you can get 10% off with our special, this might get uncomfortable coupon code. You can go to the website that we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. The URL is www.biooptimizers.com slash Wellevator. And when you go there, just enter the code Wellevator10. Again, that's bioptimizers.com. You spell it B-I-O-P-T-I-M-E-Z-E-R-S.com forward slash Wellevator and use the coupon code Wellevator10. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R in the numeral one zero. And I'm just a huge fan of this, Whitney. And as you said, like once you go down that rabbit hole of researching the quality difference in supplements, you start to feel a difference. And I've mentioned this in previous episodes, my body's super sensitive, right? So when I start to use something and I feel a difference, I'm like loyal to it. Hardcore. Oh, I am too. And I'm glad that you brought up the sleep side of it because sleep plays such an important role in our nervous system. And one of the big things that sleep does is help reduce stress. And what's interesting, though, is that sometimes more stressed, it's harder to sleep. So it becomes this cycle of you're stressed because you haven't slept and you're not sleeping because you're stressed or you're having anxiety or depression. Those can really interfere with sleep. So the two of us have experimented a lot over the years with different supplements to take. And magnesium, I think, is the one that I keep going back to because it feels more gentle. I've tried like CBD that doesn't really seem to be effective enough, even though I love CBD for other reasons. And I've also taken, what's the other one that starts with M, Jason, that uh, you'll take for sleep? Melatonin. Yes. And that is really intense for your body. <laughs> like it can really affect you. A lot of people don't feel good when they take melatonin. There's nothing wrong with it, of course. Like we encourage you to experiment with these things. 
But for me, magnesium like has this amazing, like just that ability to relax me. And it's really profound. So I think this is incredibly important too, because sleep can be tied into suicide. And for you, Jason, you've struggled a lot with not being able to sleep. And I think that has heightened your feelings of anxiousness and depression and struggle overall. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some really interesting studies too. talked again with my naturopathic functional doctor, Dr. Green, about this and the link between stress and depression and mineral depletion. And I'll find some articles. I don't have one off the top of my mind, but I'll find some studies and we'll link to those again in the show notes at Wellevator. We love to <laughs> give you, dear listener, so many great resources to work on your health. But yeah, depression and mental stress can absolutely demineralize your body. And that's an important thing to be mindful of when we are stressed out is we can be negatively affecting our health. And then again, the reason supplements come back in, not just magnesium, but a lot of supplements, you go and get a blood test, especially if you're stressed or having mental health issues, and you see what vitamins and minerals, omega fatty acids, hormones that you're deficient in. And I think it's just a critical thing to do for one's health with. Absolutely. Well, going back to this discussion, another thing that I learned through my research is there's not just suicide prevention week, but there's a whole day dedicated to it. And that's actually the day after this episode comes out. So if you're listening to this on September 9th or September 10th, we would really encourage you to do something for World Suicide Prevention Day. So I'd love to go through some things that you can do to be proactive for yourself and for others. One of the things that is coming up a lot is how some people are really struggling to find reasons for living during COVID-19. And I think that this conversation is incredibly timely. There are are people like, as you were saying, Jason, that are fighting a battle in the midst of this pandemic. They're questioning whether they want to live or some people may even like feel open to exposing themselves to COVID because they're just like, well, (laughs) this is so tough anyways, I might as well get it, right? Like they're that feeling of being kind of on the fence and ambivalent about life and looking for reasons to find hope and continue that resolve to live. And of course, this isn't just limited to right now, but I think it's important to bring up the role that suicide can play during COVID-19. So let's talk about what can be done. First of all, if you can stay connected to your loved ones by reaching out and checking in regularly and asking them what support they need, as we've talked about today, That is one of the best and easiest things that you can do. And I think also during this time of a lot of isolation because of physical distancing, people may need that anyways, even if they're not considering suicide, even if they're not feeling anxious or depressed or low or feeling loss of hope, they just might miss hearing from you and seeing you and touching you. So you can't go wrong with going out of your way to stay connected. One simple thing that you can do is to put it on your calendar, put it on your to-do list, like make it part of your daily action to reach out to people. I do that sometimes. There are certain friends who I just, frankly, I'll forget to reach out to them and just putting that out there or just reaching out to them as soon 
as I think about them. It could be a simple text message. It could be an Instagram DM. It could be a phone call, a FaceTime, whatever feels comfortable to you. Just checking in and not assuming that they're doing okay is so incredibly important. The next thing you might be wondering is like, how could you even tell if somebody's having thoughts of suicide? And I think this goes back to what I just said. You can't assume that people aren't. There are some signs that kind of like the warning signs. I'm curious, like thinking back with you, Jason, I think I just heard you sounding really low. Like that to me was the warning sign. Like you just, during those times where I think you were considering it, you just felt more disconnected and you just sounded like you were really, really struggling. And going back to me not knowing quite what to do, one of the things that I used to try to figure that out was reaching out to other people who knew you and encouraging them to talk to you. Because I felt like if we collectively were all looking out for you and checking in with you, that that would be one of the best things that would help you. You knew that you were cared for. I thought like, okay, if maybe we can keep him alive if he knows how cared for he is. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like, was that for you, Jason? Did it make you feel better when people reached out to you and connected with you and like let you know that they cared about you and wanted to spend time with you? It's interesting that you bring that up. And I also want to thank you for doing that, Whitney, because I remember getting phone calls from Ellie and Michael and my mom and a few other friends. It was, again, a very tight circle. You know, I call them my inner circle, the people that are family to me, whether we're blood related or not, we're family. And it's interesting because on one hand, yes, it was helpful absolutely to be checked in on by people that I knew deeply loved me and knew me. And then also looking at how those conversations were also showing me where there was more work to be done to heal myself. And and as an example, you know, getting those kind of phone calls and having someone be like, I love you, you matter, you know, how can I support you right now? I just want to let you know how cherished you are, how loved you are, how amazing you are, you're a gift to this world. And even receiving that, it's kind of like a dual-edged sword where on the one hand, it's bolstering to receive that and to feel that from people you care about. But then there's that part of the mind that's like, I don't really matter. I think they're just saying this to keep me alive. Do they really mean it? You know, there's almost like that really, that part of our psyche, my psyche, I'll use myself as an example, that part of my psyche at that time that was like, I don't believe this is like, it's nice to receive. And my heart feel it's like my heart felt good receiving it. But my mind was like, this is bullshit. No, you don't matter. Like you're not, you could leave tomorrow and they'd be fine. That's a very dangerous position is to believe the thought, not have the thought, okay? But to start believe the thought, believing the thought that if I were to not be here tomorrow, everyone would be fine, right? And it's dangerous because yes, on one hand, everyone, their lives would go on, but the emotional devastation would be horrifying, right? And so once I got kind of in that mode of like, no, they do mean it. And this part of your mind that is lying to you and saying you don't matter and they'll be fine if you kill yourself. Don't believe that part. Don't fall into that trap. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking over some of the signs and thinking about which like I noticed within you and sometimes it's sudden mood changes. It can be anxiety and agitation. 
I mean, those things are also kind of common. So we have to remember that some of these signs are not of suicide, of course. But it's better to assume that they are signs of it than not, right? Because I think we do get used to like, people talk so frequently about being moody and anxious and agitated. Some of us can be withdrawn. And actually that word withdrawal is really key because not making that assumption that somebody has withdrawn from your life, meaning like don't assume you know the reason they're withdrawing. And I've done that. I actually really would like to work on this because I often take that personally. During COVID, there are some people that I didn't hear from as much or I would reach out to them and they would respond back right away and I would take it personally. But withdrawal usually isn't personal unless somebody told you up front or there wasn't some inciting incident. So just seeing that word reminds me to check in with people. When people talk about being a burden, that's key too. It's interesting, Jason. I feel like you used that term before, but I don't remember for sure. Did you feel like you were a burden? Yeah, for sure. I think that was also a puzzle piece in deconstructing the shame and the guilt that I felt is if I put this on you, Whitney, if I put this on Michael, my mom, Ellie, some of our other really close friends, it was like, then they're going to be thinking about me and wondering how I'm doing and worried about me in the course of their day. And I don't want to fuck up their day. They've got businesses and lives and families and their own struggles. And like, why would I want to layer my struggle and my pain and my suffering on top of what they're dealing with? So it definitely was giving me a pause for a long time because I didn't want to feel like a burden because, you know, we talk with each other and every, look, everyone's got their challenges, everybody, everyone's got their suffering, everyone's got their cross to bear, proverbially speaking. And I just didn't want to layer any more shit on someone else's life. And that's how I felt about it. But again, once I actually made my desire to speak up and share what I was going through greater than my fear of burdening someone, greater than the fear of the judgment or whatever backlash I would receive, again, that was the big turning point is I had to look at my fear of being a burden, being an illusion. It wasn't real, right? It was the same thing in the category of, you know their lives are going to be better off without you here. It's a lie of the mind. And I want to speak to something really, really quick, Whitney, before we continue with some of these things to look for is that this might be, I don't know, controversial or alternative, okay? But in my meditation and my mindfulness practices, what I've noticed is this, is that I can have these kind of thoughts of, it might be better off if you kill yourself. Don't be a burden to them. Life will be better if you're not here. Those kind of thoughts that those thoughts only gain energy and traction and movement if I give them energy and traction and power. Okay. Right. So I can have those thoughts in a meditation, right? Because I'll be meditating in my room on my meditation mat and be like, oh, you should kill yourself. And it's not that I don't take them seriously, but I don't give them power like I used to. When I was suicidal and attempted suicide that one time, right? And it was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was giving it so much power. Like, this is real. It's actually better if I'm not here. This is the only way to end my suffering. I believe those thoughts so much. Now, when I have the thought, yeah, maybe you should kill yourself. Again, I take it seriously, but I don't give it power. And I think that's a huge distinction that I had to learn over the years. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much to learn from all of this. And... 
part of that process is feeling like, like you're saying that power. It also reminds me of that helpless feeling like, well, this is happening to me or this is happening to somebody I know. So I feel helpless. And there's a really great website actually that we're going to link to in the show notes at wellevator.com along with everything else we mentioned today. This website is called suicideispreventable.org. And it's so beautifully laid out and helpful. It just makes it so easy to figure out what to do. And there's kind of like a path you go through. It's like a start point that it leads you through understanding the signs. And then finding the words is the next section, which is really helpful for me. And they break it down into four action steps. One is to start the conversation. Two is to listen, express concern, and reassure. Three is to create a safety plan. And four is to get help. And they also include a section of what not to say. So in that first part about starting the conversation... There is a reach out section of their website that has a ton of different national and local resources. There are some talking points such as, I've noticed that you've mentioned feeling hopeless a lot lately. And that's actually a great timely phrase to use if somebody's bringing this up during COVID, for example. And again, that conversation may not lead to them talking about suicide. Maybe you will find that they're not suicidal, but I think just talking to somebody who is feeling hopeless is really important. Number two on that list about starting a conversation is saying, sometimes when people feel like that, they are thinking about suicide. Are you thinking about suicide? And that might be a really tough phrase to send to somebody. But again, you have to, if you are seeing all these signs within somebody, it's worth saying. Actually, this is triggering a memory for me Not too long ago, my sister reached out to me because one of our family members was posting some concerning things on social media. And I remember that she was afraid to reach out. And she actually did something unintentionally that I think helped. But this whole conversation is actually a good reminder for me to revisit this with my own family. She saw something on a platform where if you took a screenshot of their posts, it sent them a notification like, this person took a screenshot. And she sent that screenshot to me to show her concern. But it notified my family member that posted. And this family member reached out to my sister and was like, hey, are you sharing this post with somebody? And then that started a conversation between the two of them. And I think that there was that shame. As soon as this family member saw my sister taking that action, they wanted to explain themselves. And I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. So this whole conversation is actually helpful for me because simply saying like, are you thinking about suicide might be uncomfortable, but necessary. You can also say, are you thinking about ending your life? That's another phrase they recommend. Number two in this section is to listen, express concern and reassure. And you can say things like, I can imagine how tough this might be for you. I understand when you say that you aren't sure if you want to live or die. But have you always wanted to die? Well, maybe there's a chance you won't feel this way forever. I can help. And it's true that you can help because websites like suicideispreventable.org and this whole week and tomorrow being that World Prevention Day, 
there are so many things that you can do. And just as Jason was saying, reminding yourself that you have that power to help. Because I think that I've often felt helpless. But this whole conversation is reminding me how much I have access to. You can also express to somebody that you're deeply concerned and that you want them to know that help is available to get them through this because it is. The third step is that creating a safety plan. So first, you can check in and see if they have weapons or prescription medications in the house. And you can offer to help them remove it so that you're taking them out of danger. But you certainly don't want to put yourself in danger. So if you're concerned, you can call 911. You can kind of uh, create a further safety system. Don't make assumptions that you know what you're doing, though, especially when it comes to weapons. Another thing you could say to somebody is, is there someone you can call if you think you may act on your thoughts of suicide? Now, there are suicide prevention lines that are free. You can call them up at any point. But maybe there's somebody else beside yourself that they'll want to call. Like for you, Jason, that was perhaps your mom or your mentor or another friend. Maybe I wasn't the person you wanted to call, and that's okay. I'm not going to take that personally. So this website has a few other phrases you can share. And then the fourth step is to get help. So you can give them the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which I'll read for you out loud and will also be listed in the show notes at wellevator.com. That number is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. You can also call 911. You can walk into a psychiatric crisis clinic. You'll have to double check with COVID-19. Those are available and open. And you can even take them to a nearby emergency room. Like, Do what you can and what feels like the best course of action for you. Lastly, as I mentioned, there is the section of what not to say. And there are three main phrases in there that this website encourages not to say. One is, and this kind of comes back to things people said to you, Jason, was you're not thinking about suicide, are you? Which might sound kind of judgy, right? Our aim here is, is not to put someone into feelings of shame or... You're not thinking about doing something stupid, are you? Again, that's so judgmental. And I also feel like people say these things trying to help, but those could really trigger someone. And you don't want to ask in a way that indicates that you want no for an answer. The next phrase is, fine, if you want to be selfish and kill yourself, then go right ahead, see if I care. You're basically giving that person permission to do it. And that might be coming out of frustration or anger, but this is one of the most dangerous things that you could say. And the third one is, don't worry, I won't tell anyone your secret is safe with me. And that's because you don't want to promise secrecy because secrecy doesn't help. And again, like just reading this, I'm like, gosh, I I need to check in on my family member because I think they were trying to, you know, like going back to my sister's experience with this family member they didn't want anyone to know. They were afraid that my sister was sharing this, right? So instead, you can say, I care about you too much to keep a secret like this. You need help and I'm here to help you get it. Now, this also depends on what they say to you. So I think that would definitely make sense if they're telling you that they're considering suicide. And Jason, I don't remember if you asked me to keep it a secret. I remember feeling nervous about talking to your mom about it and some of the other people you mentioned. Were you trying to keep it a secret? No, I wasn't. I didn't specifically ask anyone to keep it confidential. 
I just sort of trusted that the people in my life would have a level of inherent discretion. And they did, you know, in terms of not talking about it with any wider concentric circles of friends or acquaintances or sharing it publicly. You know, everyone was very respectful and discreet and loving in that way. I think too that, you know, you mentioned some of these comments of what not to say and going back to statistically how young people between the ages of 14 and 20 having a higher suicide rate during the pandemic and quarantine and COVID. I've seen some really, you know, disturbing and heart shattering things on social media about, you know, DM exchanges and social media exchanges between young people and their friends and versions of what you express, Whitney, of like, well, you know, just go ahead and do it then. And then the person does end up committing suicide. And I think that sharing these resources and normalizing these conversations and giving suggestions on how to be supportive, this is potentially life-saving information. When, I mean, who of us really have been trained to talk about this? But to kind of piggyback, Whitney, on some of the questions that you were encouraging from this article, as uncomfortable as it might be to reach out and ask someone, are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking of taking your own life? Are you in really dark place right now? To me, as uncomfortable as it might feel to reach out with that kind of communication, when I have been in that place, I would receive those kind of messages in a much more, how do I say this? There would be a depth and a gravity to that style of communication versus, hey, are you okay? That never felt effective and it still doesn't to me. Like when I get that kind of tax, like, hey, are you okay? It's like, okay, how, what do you mean? You know, like if someone goes that level of deeper and they're getting uncomfortable to ask a question of like, are you suicidal? Are you thinking about, are you depressed? That style of communication to me opens up a deeper dialogue, right? It's like, it's like immediate vulnerability versus, hey, are you okay? Like, again, people have best, I, I believe most people have good intentions, but I think how we communicate in these situations is really critical. Absolutely. And there's so many more ways beyond what we've discussed today. So that's why we're going to give you lots of resources. To me, my favorite resource at the moment is suicideispreventable.org. As I mentioned, I just love the layout. It, it's really easy to navigate and find information fast. The other website I found really helpful is eachmindmatters.org. And they have a Suicide Prevention Week toolkit with lots of information about how not only can you learn and get involved, but how you can encourage other people. There's social media graphics. There's um, like activity sheets that you could do if you're an educator or if you want to get another group involved. There's some really wonderful things there. And both of those links will be listed for you in the resource section of our show notes, which again is at wellevator.com spelled W-E-L-L. EVATR.com. Well, what we typically do at the end of our episodes is share something called frequently asked queries. And these are things that people are sharing online that have led them to our website or podcast. And there were a few that actually felt related to this episode. One of them is anxiety relief tactics. We have found this to be such a common topic, as we mentioned, whether you're suicidal or not, anxiety is something that a lot of people struggle with. And we have episodes about this, as well as a free resource for you called From Chaos to Calm that goes through some of our best suggestions for easing anxious feelings, especially during COVID-19. 
And as we said a few times throughout that PDF ebook, it's not meant to take the place of a therapist, of a medical professional, of a suicide crisis line. And so those resources are linked there. They're meant to be suggestions, some things that you can experiment with and try for yourself and suggest to other people. So if you would like to, you can download that for free at wellevator.com. Same place you will go for our show notes. They're in the free resource section. And again, that ebook is called From Chaos to Calm. There was another query, Jason, that I thought you could answer really well, which is, does talking to a therapist help with anxiety? I think it does. Yeah, in my experience. And here's why. I work with a therapist. His name is Gary Glickman. We'll link to his website and his resources in the show notes at wellevator.com and also my integrative medicine doctor, Dr. Alan Green, because I want everyone who's listening to have those direct resources. And I've actually sent a lot of friends to Dr. Green and Gary to work with them. So I think that in the style of therapy that I've been doing with Gary over the years, he specializes in something called somatic experiencing and somatic therapy. And this is really getting into the areas of the body where we are on a cellular or musculoskeletal sense storing trauma and pain in our body. And so for me, I've had gut issues. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. And again, to give our sponsor BioOptimizers a shout out, you know, enzymes and probiotics have been so good for my gut is that anxiety and stress, I tend to store in my gut, my stomach, my intestines. It's it's all in that area of my body. And interestingly, working with Gary, not just on a psychological level, but a somatic level, I was able to identify that a lot of the stress, the fear, the anxiety that I carry in my body was because as a child, I somehow learned to cope with the stress, abandonment, and violence that I was experiencing with my dad in the home situation when he was around and just internalizing that in my stomach, in my gut, and in my heart. And that when I have physical issues, they tend to manifest in the gut and the heart region. So yeah, in a long roundabout sense, without getting too deep into the style of somatic therapy, it's been able to not just address anxiety on a mental level, but get into my tissues and my cells and be like, okay, when did you first experience that? Why do you think you stored it there? If you do deep belly breathing, you know, how can you relieve that anxiety? So for me, yes, I think if you were to get into a style of therapy that is somatically based, one could address anxiety and stress and some of these mental health issues but do it on a physical level as well. That's a wonderful perspective, Jason. And I'm, I'm very grateful that you can share that because as I mentioned, this is a common thing. And remembering that we're not alone and that we can learn and share and inspire and educate other people is really wonderful. So I just wanted to acknowledge you for doing that. Lastly, as a query, somebody had typed in quotes the phrase, I feel sad And I was really fascinated when I saw that because like when you put something in quotes in Google, for example, you're looking for an answer or some results based on that exact phrase. And I went to see what happens when you type that in, what results do you get? And there are actually numerous depression quizzes that come up that you can take. There are national helplines for treatment referral and lots of different articles about how dealing with depression and sadness, scientific reasons for being depressed, why do you feel sad for no reason. So there's a lot of amazing things, but you might immediately feel overwhelmed by these. So if you do type something like that in and feel overwhelmed, 
I really encourage you to reach out to somebody, to take things one step at a time. And I think, yeah, I think maybe it's just those two things. (laughs) What about you, Jason? Like, if you were feeling sad and you type that in and you saw all this information, like, what do you think would be helpful for you or? Or what would you recommend for somebody that's that's trying to resolve that feeling of sadness somehow? It's a tough one to answer because sadness is, it's inevitable. We're going to feel sad at times. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience suffering. You know, if it's something that's unmitigated, if it's something that lasts for a longer period of time than maybe we expect or feel comfortable with, I think then that's a potential red flag, right? For me, this might be a roundabout way of trying to answer this question, is when I was feeling really depressed and anxious and suicidal and and sad for long periods of time, you know, months at a time, one of the reasons that I didn't reach out for help was that I thought I could fix it on my own. There was very much this entrepreneurial, do-it-yourself, self-made thing that was creeping into my self-care mentally that was like, I'll figure it out. I can go and do a Google search and I can do the online quizzes and I can figure out what I can do it. I don't need anyone's help. That was a big part of it. I've realized though, in humbleness, humility, and gratitude, that without the willingness that I had to finally reach out, find the right doctor, find the right therapist for me, talk to my close friends and family, and then discuss this with a level of openness finally on in a public forum like this podcast, that journey for me made me realize there was no way in hell I could have done it on my own. And I don't think that it's wise. And I don't think it's beneficial for someone to have the mentality of if I'm struggling with mental health, depression, suicidal ideation, bipolar, whatever it is, that I can quote, fix it on my own. I personally don't believe that. And I think having the right people surrounding you, the right resources, people who have different experience in therapy, biomarker testing, blood panel testing. Again, I go back to it, Whitney. I think I think the combination is looking at this on a biological chemical level, a spiritual mindfulness level, a level of movement, and surrounding yourself with massively loving, supportive people. I think you set yourself up in a good position to be able to handle mental health issues and get through them. I really do. I think that's the combination. So with that, dear listener, boy, oh boy, this has definitely been one of the, I suppose, deepest episodes that we have yet done. We've done a lot of deep episodes and have a lot of deep ones to come. We, we have gone way, way down the rabbit hole of the heart <laughs> into wells of conversations and topics with each other, Whitney and myself, and some really wonderful upcoming guests. And I suppose in this moment, just want to thank you for going deep with us and being open to this conversation as we explore a topic of mental illness and mental health and suicidal ideation and providing our perspectives, our experience and the resources we found beneficial and sharing them with you. And for all of the resources that we mentioned, including the doctors, the therapists, the articles, the books, the hotlines, and also our wonderful sponsor, BioOptimizers. Once again, as we get close to the end of this episode, go to the website, which is Biooptimizers with one O B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com slash Wellevator. You can use the code Wellevator ten. It's W E L L E V A T R one zero to save ten percent on your magnesium. And maybe you just add these supplements and go get a blood test. Start to go a little bit deeper into your mental health and find the puzzle pieces that work well for you. Because in summary, again, this is an individual journey. What works for me? What works for Whitney? 
what works for some celebrity or athlete online may not be the exact pieces of the puzzle that work for you. So the willingness to experiment, the willingness to try new things, the willingness to adapt your eating, your lifestyle, your supplementation, that openness, that willingness, I think really is the key to thriving long-term with mental health. So with that, we thank you for being on this journey with us. We thank you for getting really uncomfortable in this episode. And we will, we will be back again with another deep dive. So thanks so much for being on this journey with us. We love you and appreciate you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.